Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Today, Dr. John Ewing and Kathy Kocher are joined by Dr. Drake Spath for part two of our four-part series on existential humanistic psychology. So, Drake, you were starting to talk about the the humanistic aspect, yeah, uh, basically of that internal dialogue. Um, so, the uh, existentialists start out with that basic attachment wound that we are alone, and tries to wrangle and deal with that. And yes. then we've got this uh, spiritual thing that says, "Oh, wait, no, we are part of a greater whole." and perhaps even a greater whole within ourselves. Yeah. Um, All right. And so you were starting to talk then about um, different ways of viewing the, the hierarchy of needs uh, yeah. that Maslow didn't like hierarchy. So maybe yeah. a progression of, uh, of priorities and that that desire to connect and yeah. to be part of something yeah. uh, is very strong. Okay, well, maybe then we'll begin, and hopefully this will mesh well with what happened previously, um, with sort of a review of this idea that Maslow embraced the concept that if we meet foundational needs for safety, security, subsistence, food, clothing, shelter, all of those things, that this frees up psychological availability, for lack of a better description, to start striving to meet needs for belonging and self-esteem through the relational peace. Carl Rogers talked about this as well, that we start to feel most whole when we realize these pro-social strivings with other people. And I'm connecting this also to a sense of larger social justice in the world. Lewis Hoffman and colleagues are doing research around bringing this idea that none of us are free and whole until all of us are. And while some of us languish in invisibility and unrecognition and non-validation of who we are, how can any of us be said to be whole and free? So that our individual wholeness is inextricably tied up with collective wholeness and social justice and, and those kinds of things. Rogers was also, you know, really unflinchingly optimistic that even the most vile person in others perception is striving in some way to be human and whole and that he would never give up on anyone i can't even say that i have achieved that you know <laughs> in terms of feeling like no one is beyond hope um that everyone is worthy of some level of consideration with all of that but you know and he he walked his talk not many people know that during the years of apartheid in south africa when it was at his height he was quietly there bringing fragmented and fractured groups together in dialogue to get past the prejudices to get past the polarization and kirk schneider who was a protege and then colleague of rollo may wrote books with him and now is writing his own books, talks about the polarized mind and how politically we are able to get past the extreme polarization and how we need to because it's killing us ultimately. So there's where some of the relevance, I think, to this perspective starts to come into play and why we need it right now. 
And another quick note about Maslow before I forget, I think it needs to be said, we are finding out that Maslow spent a good deal of time among the Blackfoot people. And he appears to have been highly influenced by their values and their ideas um, that he may not have come up with, you know, what we've later termed self-actualization and what's been imposed on him as the hierarchy of needs. He apparently took the Blackfoot concept of this collective safety, security, love, and everyone working together to meet each other's needs. And he turned it on its ear. He turned it upside down. <laughs> In the Blackfoot context, working toward the safety, the fulfillment of the community was the so-called highest good. And individual kind of pursuit of satisfaction was considered to be not as developed. Maslow sort of reversed that and said, we meet those things foundationally, the collective needs, and we see to everybody else. And then we can see to ourselves becoming more whole. And yet paradoxically, we become more generous and compassionate. But I think it's time that we acknowledge that um, Maslow may have taken a lot of that material and not credited the sources of that in those indigenous traditions. So this is the contemporary existential humanistic perspective that we're trying to let go of this sort of colonial march of privilege across history and get back to affirming the humanity of everybody and what that really means, taking that seriously in a global way, on a global level. And the pandemic realized that, you know, wow, there's these collective threats to our existence that really do happen. And in our lifetime, now it's not just our parents and grandparents talking about it. We're experiencing something like this. And I heard a lot of this, you know, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Well, guess what? We're not all in the same boat. We're all in the same storm with different kinds of boats. And some of us have no boats at all, <laughs> but we're all facing the same storm. And in that realization, suddenly this validity of what death anxiety means and facing it starts to make sense. So there's this thing called terror management theory that comes out of a psychodynamic tradition that has a lot of existential themes embodied in it. But the idea is that we have these defense mechanisms and the proximal defense mechanisms start to kick in when we realize that this death awareness is getting uncomfortably close to us through life events. During the pandemic, this means we started losing people who are close to us. It wasn't just this vague idea happening somewhere else to somebody that we're hearing about on the news. It's getting closer and closer to us. So some of us retreat further into the things that distract us, you know, and that works for a time until it's suddenly right there in front of us. Then we have the distal defenses that kind of kick in where then we dig deep and say, what is it that I really believe in? And then I'm going to put all of my energy into that some overarching belief in something, you know, for some people, it's a conspiracy theory that makes no sense. For others, it might be a religion, you know, to get back to that piece of the discussion. 
or it could be some philosophy or way of living one's life that they commit themselves further to. But they, the point is, is that they dig in and they try to grab onto something that's going to create some sense of meaning as to why they're facing all of this suffering and all of this threat to their life in an immediate way right now. So in therapy, we're there with people on that journey while we're also facing it and going through it ourselves, you know? And so we're all kind of suffering together and making meaning of those things together, of our wholeness, of our relationality, you know, the things that might seem absurd, you know, or the things that we want to make sense in some unique way. That's kind of what we do. So Drake, we started out with this existentialist realization of aloneness. Yeah. And we're actually not part of uh, some great plan in the universe that's going somewhere. Um, yeah. And then um, the humanistic approach um, talks about, okay, yes, you take care of your fundamental needs first, yeah. uh, shelter, and that there is a community that we are connected to that yeah. we care for. Um, and then there's all of this uh, suffering. So if we're part of this community then, um, well, I guess maybe we're not as alone and in the void and meaningless as we started out. Yeah. And that works to an extent right up to the point where we have to cross the threshold of death, you know, and no one goes with us at that point. But yes, we take a lot of comfort from the fact that we're not alone in the suffering and there's a lot of creative resourcefulness that human beings can share when they let go of the things that keep us apart from each other, you know? And if we let go of the things that we've put in place to isolate ourselves from each other because we want to feel comfortable and safe, and we have a willingness to take some risks, it can pay off in such a great way because ultimately we are relational in our longing to express the fullness of our selfhood. Because some, some of the aspects of our selfhood cannot be expressed without relationship. I think of like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaways, you know, he's on this island, he's all by himself, and he creates a relational other through the volleyball, you know, Wilson. And so Wilson becomes the way that he expresses those aspects of his selfhood in the utter isolation that he's facing on that island. You know, so that's sort of a, a poignant example of this. So then the essence of the therapy is to be there to share the journey yeah and then yeah every night we go alone into that void of sleep yeah um it's um yeah i'm uh so what separates then the uh humanist the existential humanist psychotherapist from a professional friend um in one respect, I would say not much, <laughs> except that this friend in this case happens to be versed 
and you know some of the philosophical aspects in these general psychological kinds of concepts and they have some training and experience and above all a willingness to sit in a sustained way in an intimate vulnerable relational space with a client as they're going through their most intimate suffering moments and it's not easy it's not comfortable it's not fun but there's a training in developing the capacity for empathy that allows for that kind of thing and in this paradigm it is all about relational stances and the context of the social the social context of the relationship much more than techniques treatments medications those kinds of things because we don't want to reduce the human being to pathology the human being is larger more mysterious and we heal each other we have evolved to heal each other as the psychologist david elkins has noted in some of his work we've evolved to heal each other through social means through attachment you know that you've alluded to um and how we express those things developmentally and we have the capacity to do that and we've never needed it more than we need it now so i on, on my journey which i've been pretty open talking about um i just acquired um a former colleague who has gotten certification to be a death doula mm -hmm. and that's been a really interesting uh, experience meeting and saying okay what what are you going to do <laughs> yeah and and it's really about preparing and making yeah. sure the boxes are ticked and you know these things are done and there's also you know conversations and, and sessions where where we just sit and talk about what it's going to be like to die is that yeah. existential I would say so. And in fact, you know, my wife, Angie, also does that work. She mm -hmm. prefers the term death midwife and she and she trains death midwives around the country to do all of this. You know, the quibble, this is just a quick aside that we have with the word doula is that it's a Greek word for female slave or servant. Mm. And, um, you know, and it has a lot of the baggage of that historical kind of connection. And the midwife idea to us makes just a lot more sense of sitting in that threshold, you know, and helping people cross that threshold, move through it in all of those ways. Yeah. But um, where Angie and I meet in our work, for instance, we both embrace an existential therapist by the name of Irvin Yalom, who worked with Rollo May, who I kept referring to earlier for a time. And Yalom is incredible and really amazingly fertile in his work. I mean, he's he's like the founder of group therapy. You know, everyone who does group <laughs> therapy and mental health has heard of Irvin Yalom because interpersonal process therapy he really put that on the map and he laid it out and developed training videos and all of that but he also identifies coming out of a psychoanalytic freudian tradition he embraced an existential perspective and he has his own ideas about existential psychology and existential therapy but 
he has basically said a couple of what I consider to be provocative and astonishing things about death awareness and death anxiety. He pointed out that if you get to the heart of it, death anxiety is really about the feeling of never having truly lived. Um, and, you know, I've certainly heard this, that on their deathbeds, people regret far less what they've done in their life as much as they regret what they haven't done. So talk about the ultimate FOMO again, <laughs> that there's this idea that, you know, I've not achieved this kind of thing. I've not connected with this kind of thing. I always had hoped this would happen and I never got around to it, you know, and why didn't I, you know, all of these things weren't important and I wasted my time and all of that. So we have this idea that we haven't fully lived and that's where the idea of death then becomes fraught with pain and anxiety. So that that's where it is at its root. He also has said provocatively that death anxiety is the mother of religion <laughs> because Yalom embraces this idea that in facing death and the terror of those things, we long for a rescuer. He calls it the ultimate rescuer, you know, and for some people it's the idea of God and the afterlife. Um, but we long to be rescued from the terror of this idea that one day we will not be. And, you know, Yalom has been asked, what do you think it's like when we die? And he said, well, you remember what it was like before you were born? It was pretty much that, you know. <laughs> but he's also said in his more reflective moments, he said, I wonder what it will be like when the last person who has any thought or memory of me themselves dies and go away. And then all traces of me and my memory will be gone you know, and those kinds of poignant things. So this sort of brings us to the idea then that our mind, our sense of self is a collection of memories. And yeah. so when we are together with people and we share stories, we create this, uh, this new world of shared memories. So I would suppose then that when we empathically listen to someone's story and fully are fully present for that story that then they can feel heard and this can give them permission to hear themselves as well yeah and hopefully bring that yes. into better balance um is that off base yeah and no i mean and isn't it beautiful and poignant that we at our core want to be seen with a capital s we want to be heard with a capital h you know and this is sort of gets back to what i said before so many of us in the world languish in invisibility and how terrible is that you know that they're not seen they're not heard homeless people on the street you know that's their biggest you know, aspect of their suffering again and again is nobody sees me. I don't feel like a person. I'm not heard. We don't want to be invisible. How much of trauma and work with trauma survivors is about making sure that 
this is not brushed under the rug where secrets continue to toxify it and repress it, hide it away. You know, when I worked with survivors of torture and human rights abuses, they, these clients were like, the heck with confidentiality. I want the world to know what I've been through, you know? So, gosh, I had a supervisor who worked with torture survivors and she would go on international news with her clients and they would talk about the torture and the client would say, yes, this is my therapist, you know? Um, and I give full permission for confidentiality to be, to go by the wayside here. In fact, I want this to be known. I want it brought into the light. So we, we want to be recognized. We want to be seen. We want to be validated. And um, so much of us aren't. And I think that this will remain as a fragmentation within ourselves. And we're kidding ourselves if we say individually we can be whole until we really start recognizing that and our connection that we are all connected to each other inextricably and that what happens to any people on this planet happens to all of us and that what happens we are also collectively responsible for Ooh, this concept of collective responsibility is a tough sell in dialogues publicly it's a hard one because there's so much divisiveness right now to think yeah. about i am responsible for the suffering of this person that i inherently have yeah. nothing that i can find in common with other than the existential angst yeah. that we all have and it's so yeah. Hard. Oh. yeah yeah i and I distract and avoid too but i distract and avoid through creative processes not I suppose that's the value of a pandemic, as terrible and strange as that is to say, you know, that this makes us realize, again, we're in the same storm, if nothing else. And we share that. And we don't save ourselves in isolation during circumstances like that. So that shared story can then contribute to a sense of value yeah. of uh, having a repository of ideas and experiences beyond ourselves. Yeah. And that helps us to have a connection beyond that void that we would otherwise experience. And absolutely. So cultivating and making those connections is important. So how then do you cultivate that inner balance between these different internal sources of information and dialogue uh, how how does one approach yeah. that as a as an existential humanistic psychotherapist well i i really like kirk schneider's work in this regard because he's one of the few existential folks that have focused on this experience of awe awe and it's important it's, it's importance in our lives that without the capacity to feel awe and without instances of feeling awe in our lives, it's all too easy to fall into that sense of isolation and, you know, the sense of being kind of imprisoned in these bodies and in our lives. When we have moments of genuine awe, whether it's out in nature, you know, I guess the cliche seeing a double rainbow or being like, right there at the Grand Canyon or, 
you know, I would also say in simpler moments where we're surprised by something that we didn't expect and it just strikes us as wonderful. And we have this sense of lightening of our spirits and the sense of the boundaries just kind of going away and that we're not so far removed from the natural world. I really think that this, this capacity to experience beauty, and I put a capital B on that, is connected to the sense of awe. And when we do not have it, that's as close to a definition of soul loss, you know, as we, as we see that concept in many indigenous traditions. And then psychologically, you know, depression, um, isolation, and, you know, some of the mental health challenges, we lose our capacity to experience and recognize beauty with a capital B. And when we regain that, maybe through an experience of awe, that's an experience of being soulful. And, um, you know, this is where I can bring Carl Jung into this because in a letter to a depressed friend, he said, if I were in your position, I would surround myself with beautiful things in my house, things from the outside world that bring me joy or whatever as reminders of all of the ways in which life is wonderful, you know, and beautiful. And I, I feel like this would be more effective for you than almost anything else. <laughs> um, I think that's a moment of human honesty that, you know, we can talk until the cows come home. And at the end of the day, it's this embodied experience of awe and the connection with beauty and going back to those basic things that times like this remind us that we desperately need. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.